Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. I love this book, even though it's so depressing in some sense. Um, it's so philosophical. But it's philosophical in a real way, not in an abstract, purely abstract way. Uh, there is a lot that is happening here in this book that we can relate to. And even though it was written many, many years ago, I believe it has great relevance today, not just because of the topic, but it is the very word of God. But I'm really excited to uh, move into this book because I love a book especially when it seems like it's contradictory to the popular uh, accepted notions of what is biblical and what is godly. It's kind of like the book of Esther, you know? It never mentions the word of God, or I'm sorry, it never mentions the word God, right? Wow, it's one, one little two-letter two word changes the whole meaning of a sentence. Uh, it never mentions the word God, and yet it's one of the most God-centered books in the Bible, um, and Ecclesiastes, though it comes across um, unchristian-like, <laughs> it's extremely Christ-centered. And I want to I show you how, how that is. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 through 14, hear the word of God. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, as we go into your word, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are tender, minds that are open, to not only understand your word, to not only receive and accept your word, but to be changed by it so that our lives may reflect the beauty and power of what you speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you guys a question. Can Christians be skeptics? Can believers be skeptics? What do you think the answer is? Anybody brave enough? Okay. What about, <laughs> okay, one, two, I'm going to say one, two, three, and you guys say yes or no, okay? We say it all at once so that nobody knows where it's coming from, all right? Ready? The question is, can, <laughs> the question is, can Christians be skeptics? One, two, three. Yes. Okay, you are right. <laughs> Christians can be skeptics. I don't know if you're talking from life experience or if you've done a study in, a, in the book of the Bible or if you've read a book, or if you had good conversations with people. I don't know where your response is coming from, but I agree with you. You're absolutely right. Christians can be skeptics. And what I mean by that is what I see in Ecclesiastes. And if you want to turn to these verses while I say them to you, please feel free to. But look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. He's talking about life, right? This is the title of today's sermon, Life, right? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, right? Can you imagine a Christian saying, like, man, my life is just vanity. In other words, my life is like a vapor. It's meaningless. It's empty. 
um, maybe a vernacular and pardon me for this, man, life sucks, you know? What do you think about a person who believes in God who says something like that? Life sucks, right? You're like, what's wrong? Maybe, maybe your love for God is not strong enough. Maybe, maybe uh, you haven't read the Bible enough. You should pray more. Oh, do you go to church on Sunday, every Sunday? Like, these are the type of questions you get without even considering what are the underlying reasons for why a Christian, a genuine believer, one who has been washed by the blood of Christ, would say something like that, right? Even the fact that I'm saying it that way here in the podium, you know, some of us may cringe. And I'm glad you're cringing because I want you to know that The Bible itself provides a space for grieving Christians to say stuff like this, to say that all of life is vanity, right? Um, Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. You know what that says? It says people don't really change. Societies don't really change. You can't really change people. They don't really change. They just modify their behavior, right? Or maybe they change for a little bit, but then they revert back to who they really are. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Does that sound Epicurean to you? Does that sound um, pragmatic, materialistic? Does that sound like this person believes in God, that the best thing in life is to eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit of your labor, what you work hard at in life? Does that sound like a Christian? Would you be encouraged by that? Is that like a state, a quote that you would like kind of look on your phone and be like, wow, this thing really inspired me to go to work at 8 a.m. this morning, you know? Um, Look at Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 18. You know, Ecclesiastes is a long word, so I'm just gonna say the chapters now because it's all in Ecclesiastes, right? Look at chapter three, verse 18 through 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them and that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. To dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward And the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. I mean, you know what this person is saying? This person is basically saying human beings are no different than animals. You know, at the end, in verse 21, this person is saying, this believer in God, he's basically saying, how do you know for sure that there is a heaven that people go to and that animals just kind of die and turn into dust? Right? Would you be, would you be, would you say that in the middle of a, a church fellowship? Like, would you be comfortable? Maybe some of you would, right? I would. I wouldn't care, <laughs> right? But I don't know if some of you would, right? Look at chapter 7, verse 16 through 17. Be not overly righteous. What does that mean? Like, don't be really devoted to God. Don't be really committed to God. Just be a little bit half-hearted, half in, half out. That's better. Like, what is this person saying? This person is saying that life sucks, right? We're no different than animals. Who knows even if there's a heaven, right? 
And don't be, don't be too Christian. Don't, don't try to be too holy. Like, what, how do we respond to this? This is our Bible, guys. It's not just one verse in the book. It's all throughout. The book of Ecclesiastes is not that long. So when you see verses like this throughout the entire like seven chapters of the book, it's not just, it's not just there randomly. And that's the whole theme of Ecclesiastes. You see where this person is coming from. He's experiencing a lot of injustice and a lot of the suffering and pain that's in the world. You see, when you read the book, he talks about the uh, wealth gap between those who are born into privilege and those who are born in poverty. He talks about how the wicked prosper and how the righteous, they don't, right? He talks about how people who want to be obedient to God and be faithful to God, they have no advantage over the people who could care less about God. Like, this is what he's talking about because he's experienced life. And these are the things that he's noticing. And you know what some of the conclusions, if today, if we went through something like this and we felt it not just cerebrally in a class setting or something like this in a teaching setting, but if we felt that, if we experienced that from our, from our parents, right? If we experienced that from school, from our friends, from church, from, you know, just stuff that happens in life, you know, we wouldn't be sitting in a church thinking about these questions. We wouldn't even be at church at all. It's a serious issue. And so it's very confusing and perplexing to come to the verse that I just read in the beginning of the sermon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where the person who's experienced all of this in his life, how he can conclude and say, the, this, is, this is the conclusion. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. He says, not walk out the door and be agnostic now or be an atheist. He says, actually, the opposite. He says, fear God. Right? Where does that come from? How is that a logical conclusion to everything that he's just recorded, everything that he's experienced and observed in life? How does he conclude with, we should fear God because there's so much injustice in this world? How do you conclude that? Um, I'm going to point out two things. I'm going to show you why he concludes it this way. Number one, he really cares about truth. And number two, he really understands what it means to fear God. Number one, he really cares about truth. When you look at verse 12, he says, the end of the matter all has been heard. You know what that is? That means he's put in the time and the effort He's put in a lot of energy into understanding what the world is. You see, in some ways, if you just come away from suffering and just say, it's bad, (laughs) and therefore God is not real, in some ways, you have not heard everything. You have not delved the depths of what is happening there, right? In, In some sense, you are willing to philosophically settle for an easy solution, an easy response, to a very complicated problem, right? 
So when you say that, um, that the conclusion after observing all human suffering and the injustice that, injustices that are in this life, and you conclude that the best thing for me to do is not think about it anymore and to leave God behind and to just live my life the way that I want, you see, there is not really a caring for truth. But if you look at this person and what he says in chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, by the way, a lot of people think that the person who wrote Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, right? But if you look in chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, you don't see a guy who is carelessly dismissing these complicated life problems that he is that he has experienced and observed. You see, pragmatism and conventionalism, what I mean by that is the philosophy of whatever works. Okay, I don't understand all this stuff. I, I don't have time to sit and think about philosophical questions and theological problems because I need to make money and I need to enjoy what I make. You see, a person like this, he hasn't settled for a simplistic solution like pragmatism. He wants to get to the heart of the issue. And if you look in chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, you, look, you see a man who is willing to wrestle with these strong philosophical problems so that he can live life in a real way that is nuanced, that is careful, and that is right before God. He is, willing, he is willing to acknowledge that this problem is not purely just a survival problem. You see, what I mean by that is if you approach all the injustices and all the wrongs that you can't figure out in life, and your answer to that is to say, well, I just, I'm just going to ignore it, and I'm just going to major in what I need to major in, work at what I'm going to work at, save what I'm going to save, and be happy. You see, what you've done is you think you've solved the problem. You're saying, no, I know. I'm not thinking that. I'm, I, I've avoided the problem altogether. But you solved the problem in responding in a certain way to that problem. So that's your solution. It's not a good solution. It's not even a solution at all. But that's how you responded. That's your solution to it, and it's simplistic. What this person is saying is that I'm not going to just forget about the problem and just try to live the happiest life that I individually can. What he's saying is I'm going to wrestle with this, and I'm going to live the type of life that, that understands what's going on here. He's not saying that he has the ability to solve this, this life puzzle like a Rubik's Cube and put all the colors together on one side. What he's saying is, I know that this problem is bigger than me, so I need to spend more time, more energy. I need to give it, I need to dignify how much I engage with this problem. I'm not going to think superficially about it. I'm not going to just say that the best answer to this philosophical problem is pragmatism, is to go with the theory of, I'm going to do whatever works because, you know what, I don't really care about this problem. It doesn't even make money for me anyway. You know, He's saying it's much more important. It's such a bigger problem, and it, it, it affects every human being. It affects the world that I cannot respond with a simplistic practice 
pragmatic answer of whatever works, works, and that's good enough for me. You see, he's willing to wrestle with it. And what he says in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Like, think about this literally. How, how many times have we entered, and now I understand, New Testament, Old Testament systems are different, but for the sake of this mental exercise, how many times have, you, have we entered into church Guarding our steps. Not because the concrete is icy in the wintertime. And, you know, hopefully we won't have another snowpocalypse. But, you know, guard your steps. What does that mean? How do we, as we come into the house of God, so to speak, okay? And this is not a denial of New Testament theology of us being the church. And that we are the temple, that's not a denial of it, okay? How many times do we come before a corporate gathering, the house of God, and we actually actively guard how we physically come in, how we emotionally come in, how we mentally come in? Or do we just come in unguarded? As if... There's no Satan. There's no Satan who's going around roaring like a lion, trying to consume every single one of us in this room. Like, there's no Satan. There's nothing. And we just come in. There's no, there's no cross. It's just, it's just a social event that's happening. And I'm just attending. How many times do we take the approach of, of King Solomon when he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God? Right, And he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listen to who? Listen to God, of course. What he's saying is, it is better to draw near to listen to God than to do a bunch of stuff for God without even knowing why we're doing it without even understanding how we feel while we're doing it, without even understanding the ramifications and consequences of our actions. It is better to draw near and to listen. Um, uh, Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. Don't just say stuff just because you're uncomfortable with quietness and silence. Don't just say stuff to be social and not be awkward. It says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. You know what this is saying? (laughs) This is talking about what our entire retreat was about, our exhale retreat, emotional health. Like, he's saying, do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Like, you're in the presence of God. What are you willing to say? In his majestic, almighty presence. Like, what are we willing to say? And what he's saying is, every word that you say, it's, it's connected to how you feel. It's connected to your heart. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example real quick before we move on. How many times, because you... You had some uncomfortable moment with somebody. You decided to call or text or 
meet somebody in order to get rid of that feeling. In other words, like it's, it's kind of like a, my wife does this, does, does this with movies, right? I love scary movies. So sometimes, you know, she'll give in because I ask her over and over, can we watch this movie? Let's watch this movie, you know? She'll give in and she's like, oh my gosh. Like five minutes in, she's like, I can't finish this movie. <laughs> and then she's like, I need to watch something funny and happy, right? Like The Office or something or, or John Oliver, I don't know, right? And, you know, you know, with movies, I guess it's fine. But when it comes to interpersonal relationships, how many times do we go from one person to another because our past experience with that person was, it was hurtful to us. Our emotions were broken because of it. And so we're looking for that healing, but we're not looking for that healing from God. We're looking for that healing from a social experience. Hmm? That's what it's talking about. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word in the presence of God, right? For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, right? He cares about truth. Like, you know the conclusion? Like, you know, some of us grow up with this in church and our families, right? Especially sometimes in Asian contexts. You know, high context communication, which means hardly any communication is going on, right? Any kind of verbal communication, at least. And there's tons of nonverbal cues you have to pick up on, right? But, um, you know, you can't really say what you're feeling. You can't really say some of the brokenness that you're experiencing. And then someone says to you, stop, stop, stop dwelling on it. Just, you know, God's in control. Don't worry about it, right? Like, the author of Ecclesiastes, that's not what he's doing. When he says the conclusion of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. He's not dismissing the struggle that you're experiencing about life and its challenges and how unfair your experiences are compared to someone else. He's not being dismissive. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He's coming to that conclusion not because he's dismissed the nuances of your suffering, He's coming to that conclusion because he's thought it through. And he's felt it through. He understands not only cerebrally what is happening in life, these injustices, but he's emotionally experienced it as well. And it's because of that knowledge and understanding and that empathy that he's able to encourage his readers and say, fear God. Because that's really the answer. And so let's talk about fearing God. So he cares about truth. And so you can't just say, fear God, without caring for truth. You have to care about the truth of every person and their experience that you come across. You're not going to just cookie-cutter them into, oh, yeah, you suffered that. I, I, I felt that, too. No, you didn't, because you're not them. It takes time to incarnate, to get into the flesh of someone else's life experiences and suffering. It takes time to listen take time to feel what they feel. It takes time to empathize with what they need to weep. You know, there's a reason why the scripture tells us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't say, oh yeah, just tell them how you went through it. 
It doesn't say, oh yeah, you know, you understand them too. Just give you an example of something that you experienced in your life. No, it says weep with them. It doesn't say tell a parallel story of how you experienced something similar. Right? Like, the author of Ecclesiastes cares about truth. He cares about truth. And because he cares about truth so much, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, what does it mean to fear God? How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hands, how many of you guys have learned that fearing God is about respecting God? Don't raise your hand. It's not. Respect and fear, respecting God and fearing God are two very different things, if you're going to understand what fearing God really is. There is an emotional component to fearing God that is not there with respecting God. You know, with respecting God, you, you kind of say, hey, God, oh, you got a lot of power there. Oh, you have it. I don't want to cross you. Okay, you know, you, you do you, I'll do me. <laughs> right? That's respecting God. What fearing God is, is what it looks like in Exodus chapter 20 verse 18 through 21. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. There's an emotional component to this. Right? There are other verses I can bring out in Ezra, Job. There's so many verses on fearing God. It is so clear that you cannot divorce the teaching of fearing God with emotion. You cannot. And the, and the issue is, is that some of us, and I, I'm included in that, we grew up, we were taught, or we just kind of figured, try to figure it out ourselves, that fearing God is about this kind of, uh, de- kind of detached, distant, cerebral, kind of re- reverencing God. But there is actual emotional terror, right? Now, some of you who know your Bible, you're thinking, whoa, hold up. That's an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, I know verses where it says, fear in God, fear is not part of our faith. And some of you may think, Tay, didn't you think about 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 through 8? Of course I did. It's in my notes, right? It says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I agree with you. You're right. God didn't give us a, a spirit of fear. And you can also go to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. I, agree, I would agree with you. Yeah, we don't have a spirit of fear. And you can even go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 and say, there is no fear in love. Duh, right? Absolutely, I agree with you. And he goes on to say, but perfect love casts out fear. I agree with you. But if you were to take those verses and therefore conclude that fearing God, there's no emotional component where you're actually terrified of who God is, I would say you're wrong. Or I would say, kindly, you've forgotten what it means to fear God. 
because even though there are those New Testament verses, there are also other New Testament verses like these. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give him glory. Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You're saying, yeah, 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 I know that. And that's where, you know, fear is about reverence and respect. It's not about terror. And all you have to do is from a, okay, so there's a, there's a biblical argument and then there's an experiential argument. There's an argument from experience. Let me talk about the argument from experience. All you have to do, just look up. <laughs> if, you, if you have a, whatever, nice TV or if you get really immersed in your phone screen, whatever, just go to YouTube. Okay, look up any tornado video. <laughs> just look at it, right? And then just immerse yourself in that video, like kind of do that mental trick, right? And you will find yourself emotionally feeling something when that camera, or when the person is chasing that tornado, when it's up close and that person is like yelling, it's like, get back, get back, right? Or when that, when that camera pans upward and you feel like you're right there, that tornado is gonna create, that video of the tornado is gonna create some kind of emotional experience in you. You're gonna feel like, oh my gosh. Man, if I was there, I would run for my life. That's an emotion there. And you know what's happening? It's not that when you come into the New Testament, Fearing God is completely canceled out. You know what has been canceled out? It's just like that YouTube video in some sense. The danger and the punishment and you being trapped in that situation. Like if you were really there, you'd be trapped. You'd have nowhere to run. You being trapped in that situation. Another word for being trapped in that situation is slavery. You see... The slavery to the wrath of that whirlwind, right? And the punishment that comes if you dare come close to a tornado is gone. But that doesn't change the tornado itself. It's still powerful. It's not that the tornado has become less fearsome. It's just your slavery to it and the punishment that comes if you dare transgress against it has been taken away. And you see, that's what it means to fear God in the New Testament. You see, the wrath and the punishment of God's holiness and righteousness has been taken away by Christ. And the slavery that you would have as you stand before a holy and righteous God who condemns you for your sinfulness has been undone. And it is because you have been covered by the blood of Christ. You have been removed 
from that place of wrath into a place of grace and favor that you are safe. But you feel the same thing. I'll give you one more example. Um, you ever see those YouTube videos where um, some of you are thinking, man, he watches a lot of YouTube. <laughs> You're in the, the, the video's shooting a zoo and it's, there's glass and there's like a Siberian tiger or a lion or something and then the baby's kind of like on the glass with the back Right? There's a little toddler or infant, and then the tiger's coming, but the baby doesn't know. And for some twisted reason, the parent is finding enjoyment in all this by videoing it. Right? And then the, the lion or the tiger or the bear or whatever finally gets to, as it gets closer to the glass, it starts speeding up, and then it just puts its paws on full force on the glass, and then the toddler turns around and is terrified, and the child is scared to death, but the child is safe. That's what it means to fear God in the New Testament. It's not that God has become less holy. It's not that God has become less demanding. It's not that God is now okay with our sin. He is not okay with an unrepentant heart. He will judge every unrepentant heart in the world. He is not okay with that. He is the same God that he was in Genesis. He's the same God that he was in Judges. He is the same God that he was in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and all of those books. What has changed is not the character or the standard of God. What has changed is that that standard has been fulfilled by the Son of God himself. And he has covered us in his blood so that the wrath and the punishment and the slavery to, being, to receiving that wrath full force has been done away with by the blood of the Lamb. That's what's changed. You cannot say, if you have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, that... In the New Testament, in the church today, we do not need to fear God. You see, when you read these verses, when it says, love casts out fear, it doesn't cast out fear of God, it casts out fear of punishment. It casts out fear of slavery to sin. Perfect love casts out fear. It's not about, oh, now we don't have to be scared of God. No, you should be scared of God. But you should also be so brokenly thankful to him because of what he did for you on the cross. That's the difference. And that's why the Bible says we sin because there is no fear of God in our eyes. There is no fear of God in them. Because we think that the cross cancels out the character of God. We think that the love of God is oppositional and exclusive against the righteousness and the holiness of God, and it is not. The love of God does not cancel out the holiness, it fulfills it. The love of God does not know the righteousness of God, it fulfills his righteousness. And I just want to encourage you, to enjoy 
your new place in Christ of safety, of having no punishment, of not being a slave to sin, but also remember who God truly is. And when you forget that peace, that's when your faith turns into entitlement. That's when you get comfortable with the idea that God is a God of love. And that's when you forget to repent. And when you forget to repent long enough, it turns into something else. It turns into an unwillingness to repent. And a refusal to admit your sins. And that's why the teaching, confess your sins to one another, becomes something disagreeable to us. Because we have forgotten who God truly is. And we have, a, we have resorted to simplistic, pragmatic solutions of surviving in this existence because we cannot deal with the complexity of how God works in a broken world that he is working to redeem. Life is not about surviving. It's about thriving. It's cliche, I know, but it's true. Life is not about surviving. Because if you think life is about surviving, you're saying you're God, and you need to create the life that you want for yourself. But if you see life as not striving and surviving, but resting and flourishing in Christ, in that place where Christ has brought you to safety, and away from the punishment of God, you will find true rest. True rest. And the word of God will be new. The songs that you sing will be new. The prayers that you pray will be new. And the people that you didn't understand will be a new experience of connecting with them for the first time. Everything, all things will be new because it is God who is making them new. And it is only found by resting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are and what you have done.